Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. AJ here, Director of Life Groups and Discipleship. We're jumping back into First Peter content with chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So with that, let's go deeper. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here with Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. It's been a, a fun time to interview some different people on our staff. And so we're back into the first Peter content with uh, chapter two, verses 11 through 12. And so I'll read it really quick for our listeners. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Danny, what I want to do is break down this passage in a couple of different sections, um, starting with this urging, um, this imagery of sojourners and exiles abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so we've been talking about this transition from identity in Christ and, and learning about who we are into now sort of more actionable material. And I, th I find it interesting that he starts with abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. And so I'm interested why you think Peter starts here, because as Christians, I thought, you know, we we're liberated to do things and we're free. And so why start with this concept of self-denial? Yeah, I think the self-denial concept is interesting because the when we read this phrase, it instantly hits us because we all battle the flesh, right? We all face, this is why last week we took the whole Sunday to talk about our spiritual battle and the demonic forces, because it does feel like much of living well, if we're going to talk about living good lives, is us just trying hard to do the thing that we know we should do. Like Lauren said last week, our deeper desires winning out over the stronger desires, these battles of the flesh that just take over and we end up doing the wrong thing all the time. And so on one hand, we read it biographically, autobiographically, and we think, oh yeah, I get that. That's a battle that I have. But remember, Peter is also writing this as a document to teach these people how to live lives, to win over their neighbors for Christ. And part of this Greek Roman philosophy that people lived in was this desire that folks had to, to gain control over their bodies and live the way that a virtuous life, right? And so one of the commentaries that we read uh, drew this out and just said, you know what, that Christians, if they could show their religion had enabled them to achieve self-control over their passions, they could use their conduct to make a claim for the truth of Christianity. So you know what, this religion is viable and true because look, this Christian religion has given me the ability to have control over the desires that so often take over in my life. And so part of it is a little bit of a, hey, this is our struggle. And part of it is him saying, if you could do this, you actually could show people that your strange religion is a valid one because it has transformed you in this way. And so there was a familiar ethic involved with this Greco-Roman culture of just denying the flesh, not being dominated by your carnal desires. I want to pause for a moment on this uh, concept of waging war against your soul. Um, I find it interesting that he's talking about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. And then it talks about waging war against your soul. And so I'm wondering, is he trying to elevate one over the other? Is he saying like, well, our battle against the flesh 
really is only beneficial so much so um, when it affects our soul or is like our soul affecting the flesh or like what exactly is going on with this relationship between the soul and the flesh? I don't know if Peter is making a claim here about, you know, against Greek philosophy of, you know, whether the soul or the flesh or these different aspects of humanity are important. But we know from uh, the from the scriptures that we are souls, right? We are embodied souls. We are human beings, right? If a, a ship goes down, they talk about how many souls were on board. And so we are uh, human beings that are integrated, our body and our soul together. And yet the flesh is this other piece in all of that, which is a little bit hard to define, right? It's that that piece of you that exists that wars against what your mind and what your soul wants you to do. And so really, yeah, maybe there is this battle inside between our flesh, what like our uh, lizard brain wants us to do, and our soul, which is this beautiful thing that God has created us as a as a harmonious being with him and with others and with truth and with right living. Um, and so these desires of our flesh, Peter says, wage war against uh, us as God has designed us to live. He talks about this uh, not being dominated by these carnal desires. And then just like previous passages, he pairs it with a positive. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And so in the original language, that keep your conduct language, anastrophe, we've seen that verb before in uh, chapter 1, verses seven, 17 through 19, which I'll just read really quick. Conduct yourselves, which is the word there, with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so there's this concept of, you know, in chapter one, it's the Lord that's kind of overseeing things. But now it's saying, Anastrophe, keep your conduct in a way in which the Gentiles can look on it and, and see something about it. And so um, in, in terms of keeping our conduct honorable, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, what is good in our culture and what is honorable. And so I'm interested if we can get into the shoes of Peter in this first century church for a moment. Um, what does he mean by honorable? I know in the sermon you drew a couple of Venn diagrams to kind of help us wrap our minds around honorable conduct and what that looks like for the Christian. But I'm wondering if you could just dive a little bit more into what does it look like to live an honorable life among the, amongst the Gentiles? Yeah, there's a, a few different words that Peter uses uh, that are a little bit difficult to define. The first one uh, is is fear. You brought that up in that chapter one. The I don't know if that Greek word there is phobos, but that comes up again, uh, phobos, in this chapter when he's talking about uh, having this fear when you're in an, a servitude relationship, having this fear towards God maybe when you're in a marriage relationship. And so a lot of commentators have said, how, how does Peter use fear? Because it seems differently. He doesn't talk about, it seems like he's defining reverence like this humbleness before God, but he uses this Greek word phobos, which usually means like terror. And so there's this kind of like tension in in that word, for example, of what is Peter really trying to say? How are we supposed to live? Are we supposed to be scared of something or just live humble lives in honor of our creator? And the same thing kind of comes with this honor word, because we, we've talked about honor before on the podcast of just an honor and shame culture. Mm. And there's a bit of a double entendre here too, because as we see these different household codes in the next few chapters, and as we talk about kind of at a categorical level, living honorable lives here, 
it means kind of both things, right? On one hand, he's saying, live a life that when the Gentiles look at you, they'd say, that's an honorable person. But then at the same time, when he's describing the Christian life, worshiping the God of, right, worshiping Jesus, uh, living in these different ways he's about to call us to live in this next chapter, these are ways that wouldn't be considered honorable by a Greek culture, but would consi- could be considered honorable by God himself, right? And so there's, I don't know if he's, doing a play on words here or sometimes when I read honorable I put it in quotes in my mind or something it's like (laughs) honorable in the sense that like you're striving kind of like Paul said in Acts to keep my conscience clear before both God and men Um, and so really what Peter is saying is I'm about to give you a, a way of living that straddles these two worlds on one hand we want you to to settle down and live in this Roman world in a way that people aren't going to hurl insults at you if possible. And at the same time, you're not going to be able, you have to live in, in reverent fear before the Lord. And so the way you live is not going to be considered honorable by some people in the world, but in the eyes of God, uh, it is honorable. And so it's a bit hard to pin down, but at the same time, as you walk through these different sections, you see Paul or Peter kind of helping us straddle both sides of this fence of living a life that's honorable before God and striving to live a life that is even commendable in the eyes of a Roman culture that thinks Christians are a strange, weird bunch of people. Yeah, even in the Roman culture and some of the commentaries that talked about how there was a value in abstaining from the flesh, but then the positive was live in the Roman way, the, the Roman prescribed way of life, essentially. And, you know, in our fall recommended resource, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer talks about how the Christian culture of, of ethics kind of transformed the Roman Empire from the inside out. He outlines five different things, uh, the church being multiracial and multi-ethnic with a high value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. He talks about the church that was spread across socioeconomic lines and um, high value for caring for the outcasts. It was also a staunch in its resistance towards infanticide and abortions. It was it was resolute in its vision for marriage and sexuality, and it was nonviolent, both personal and on a political level. And so these cultural alternatives and this, this way of living, um, we were abstaining as Christians early on. That was righteous in the eyes of the Romans. But then this alternative culture that, that kind of went across the grain of the Roman culture, the Roman Empire, uh, kind of stood out. And so I think it might be beneficial to just pause for a second and remind our listeners, how could Peter be continuing to call us towards um, honorable actions, honorable conduct without crossing into a works-based faith? So could you just like reiterate um, how, where we've been in this series so far that kind of lands us to where we are? Yeah, that's a a constant struggle as we read the scriptures is especially when we start talking about conduct or we think of some of Paul's letters like uh, I think it's Ephesians where like halfway through he turns the corner and says all right now let's talk about how to live this thing out (laughs) and there's always a dance there that sometimes the Bible authors bring out and like I think of Paul talking about uh, you know those those conflicts of hey should we sin more so that grace should abound right does this teaching about obedience mean that grace doesn't matter? Or does this teaching about forgiveness mean that grace doesn't matter, right? And, uh, or conduct doesn't matter. And so there's all of these tensions throughout the scriptures. Peter works really hard to breathe the gospel and the example of Jesus into everything. And so we saw that in the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter. We'll see that again in these sections to follow where he keeps bringing the example of Jesus as our guide, that we're, our life is flowing out of our identity in him. But I think even 
not even more than that, but as a even more obvious way to not move into legalism from that, when you really understand the tension of first Peter, you realize that he's not in any way giving you a list of ways to live. He's mm. giving you all these tensions to wrestle with mm. that we don't really know what it means to live honorable lives. Just some of these, like for example, these household co- codes he's about to give us totally are revolutionary in the eyes of mm. a Greco Roman society. Mm-hmm. And some of them he's saying as much as you can live among the Roman people. Right. And so these tensions that we have to live with when we live in them really prevent us from moving into a checkbox type legalistic Christianity because it's really hard to become a legalist when you're re- when you're wrestling with and recognizing the tensions of the Christian life. And when you're able to, like Peter's trying to do, uh, be equipped with a mindset that says, okay, what do I do in this scenario? I live in this strange place. The world is calling me to do this. I don't feel right with it, but I want to blend it as much as possible. But I'm okay with suffering, right? It's it's this whole kind of tension that we bring and a posture, um, which is why we'll see in this in this next phrase that he brings next week or in a couple weeks in our sermon time, uh, he he gives us this kind of controlling idea of adopting a posture of submission, hmm. um, submission to Christ, submission to one another, and really, it's hard to be a checkbox driven, legalistic, prideful Christianity mm. when your ultimate posture in life is, I'm just going to serve everyone that God puts in my path, mm. and I'm going to ultimately just serve him and lift all of these tensions up to him. And so I think the heart attitude that these tensions create and demand can be um, a a force against a legalistic tendency that, that many of us are wired to have. Mm. Peter's wrestling with these tensions with a people that are described as sojourners and exiles. And this is the source of the skeptical question for this episode. Um, This isn't the first time that God's people have wrestled with how to live as sojourners and exiles. For example, um, some of that imagery kind of points us back to the life of Abraham. Abraham was called to a foreign land, and so he was already wrestling with like, how do I live in this place where, you know, God is leading me, but also I'm alone. I'm an exile in this place. And so if you read it kind of high level, it almost seems like Abraham just sets up shop and God kind of takes care of the rest as he is fruitful, as uh, Israel grows into this land. In a similar way, uh, Israel also ends up in Babylonian exile. And that's another spot in Jeremiah 29. It talks about, um, you know, seeking the welfare of the city while they're sojourners, while they're exiles in this foreign land. You know, marry, uh, bear sons, multiply there, do not decrease. All these things that seek the welfare of the city. One of the instances, however, is when Israel is in Egypt. They're foreigners, they're sojourners. And what we find there is that God just kind of takes over, starts throwing down plagues left and right, and takes his people out of Egypt, ultimately to return them back to a land where he pretty much commands them in Deuteronomy 20 to leave nothing alive, like devote them to complete destruction, all these people groups that are in the land. And so we end up with a conversation here in First Peter about these displaced foreigners, and now we're called to just abstain from the flesh and live honorably. And so all this being said, it feels like one of these things is not like the other. One of these things does not belong. So I'm interested in what changed. What, why not take the approach in Exodus? Why doesn't God take the approach of just saying, hey, I know these people are causing you harm. I know they're causing you trouble. 
uh, let's just throw some plagues at them. Let's like command you to annihilate them. Like what's going on here? Um, why change? It's interesting when you think through all these different Old Testament contexts that, that Peter alludes to a number of times throughout his book too. So I think it's good that we go back there. Uh, you see that it's always a, God gives his people a challenge of what they're supposed to do in this context based on where they are, where they're going and where they've been. And so these examples you brought up, right, in in Babylon, this is a a punishment from God. You're in Babylon for 70 years, and then you're going back. And so make the best of it, right? Mm -hmm. Or in Egypt, it's like you're in slavery. You need to be redeemed from slavery, and I'm going to give you a land that I've promised, and you're going to take that land over in Canaan, Mm -hmm. right? And so you're here. You're not supposed to be here. Let's go, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that the Peter context uh, and the New Testament context and still our context today is a little bit of both. Because Peter draws out the fact that this is not your home, right? You're temporary aliens here. Your home is in heaven. There's a future land and promise and kingdom waiting for us. This earth is not our home. We're going to be there someday. So make the best of it like Babylon. But at the same time, like Jesus' kingdom parables, we see this context that while you're here, it's not just waiting to go back, but we want to expand the kingdom over all the earth until the kingdom comes. So I think of in Matthew when Jesus gives these kingdom parables of saying the kingdom of God is like a wheat field that expands throughout the whole earth, or it's like a mustard seed that grows into this tree so big, the birds of the air uh, perch in its branches. This kingdom is growing. It's permeating every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's taking over the entire globe. And so there's this picture of global domination, Hmm. not in a military victory, Mm -hmm. but as folks are one to Christ and the kingdom emerges as Christians go out and bring the gospel to these lands. So we have this bit of a tension where these folks are living in a foreign land and they're called not merely to wait it out until their real land is ready, Mm -hmm. but they're called to take it over, not in a military sense, but take over for Christ every place that God puts them while they wait for their forever land and move towards it. And so they kind of get this hybrid of you're in this space, be like the Babylonian exile where it's you as much as possible of at peace with all men. But at the same time, while you're there, you're, you're living such a good life that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see your good works and glorify God on that day when he visits us. Mm-hmm. So when we do find ourselves in that permanent kingdom that will never end, these folks that you encountered in Babylon, so to speak, will be there with us worshiping our Lord because of your conduct in that time. Hmm. So this is an evangelistic flair, which then leads us to that last uh, part of the passage that you referenced right there. It says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which you just referenced. Um, There was a quote in one of the commentaries I want to share here. It talks about the reaction uh, of being called an evildoer. I think that's a that's something that's being thrown around in our culture today as Christians, you know, as we're trying to live out our Christian faith. There's accusations that we are doing evil or doing harm against people. And so uh, the quote says, depending on their temperament and situation, it is easy to imagine that some of Peter's readers might naturally wish to resist either verbally or physically those who are unjustly maligning and grieving the Christian community. Others maybe adopting a more passive stance or privatizing their Christian faith and publicly assimilating to their culture, becoming closet Christians, so to speak. And so this this quote brings out the tension of, okay, some people might want to lean into that taking over and being hostile, but some people might 
become more passive and kind of hide their faith in this culture. And so I'm interested in a pastoral question here. What is your encouragement to people here in the East Bay as they're trying to live out their faith, as they're trying to keep their uh, conduct honorable and abstaining from these fleshly passions and desires? And they're getting called evildoers. They're, they're, they're being accused of crazy things. What's your encouragement to them out of First Peter? It's interesting. When you look at where Peter goes from here, he brings this conversation of how to live honorably uh, into the home, right? into these, uh, into what it means for you to be a citizen of under the government, what it means for you to be in servitude in a, a household where you're one of the household servants, what it means to be in a marriage relationship, specifically he talks to the wives who are in that culture called to just be um, not not like servants classically to their husbands, but but really lack of voice, lack of authority in a Roman culture. What does it mean to be a Christian in that place? And he targets those specific places, right? And he doesn't say, hey, get out of there, go to the town square and start preaching the gospel, like mm-hmm. we do see some of the apostles doing when they go to foreign cities. Really where Peter's application comes in our life is what does it mean to live honorable lives within the societal construct in which we find ourselves. Mm. So what does it mean to be an honorable wife in a Greco-Roman construct and still push towards the equality we see in the gospel? What does it mean to be an honorable household servant in a Greco-Roman construct while still realizing that you are equal to your master in that sentence, in the, in that context, right? Mm -hmm. You know something that they don't. And so you want to live towards the truth of the gospel and live as equals. But at the same time, you're willing to submit and sacrifice yourself for the sake of someone else. Hmm. And so I think the the key to living an honorable life in a culture like our own is really figuring out, okay, what does it mean for me to adopt a posture of submission, like we'll talk about next time, and uh, becoming a servant of all people while still pushing forward in the truths that our faith gives us to hold on to. So if if we know there is no longer male or female, slave or free, Greek nor Gentile, or Jew nor Gentile in the church, what does it mean to, to live in that place of equality and still be in a society somewhere where maybe you're in a marriage, like we'll talk about in a few weeks. Maybe you're in a marriage where uh, your spouse does not believe the same thing as you. How do you serve your spouse without watering down your belief in a way that is honorable that sometimes they might not call it honorable, but really someday when God returns, uh, either they're going to see at that point, or maybe they'll be worshiping him because of the way that you lived your life. And so these are the tensions in which we find ourselves that Peter prescribes for us to figure out what it means to live honorably within the context we already are. And so I think for us pastorally in our region, the questions are, what does it mean to be a Christian, not water down my faith, but live honorably? with my kid's soccer team or in my marriage relationship or with the parents that God has given me or with the children God's given me or with the boss God's given me or in the family structure God has given me or in the neighborhood God has given me. Of course, there's a time and a place to move out of our construct and preach the gospel on the street corners and all that. But where Peter is obliged to tell us to live is in the structures in which we already find ourselves. So I think that's where he's ultimately telling us to live in and find the tensions of honorable living. Let's close the conversation by looking at that final phrase of this last part of this passage, uh, on the day of visitation. And uh, I know this brings up some interesting uh, conversations as well. Uh, That one time that it's actually mentioned in the New Testament, this language of visitation, is in Luke 19. And in Luke 19, Jesus uh, returns to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, 
And then he talks kind of negatively about Jerusalem and how they're kind of blind to what's going on. And uh, you didn't know the time of your visitation, it says in Luke 19, verse 44. And then after that, it's Jesus clearing the temple, Jesus bringing reform to Jerusalem. And so there's like this language of this day of visitation being a place where, you know, Jesus comes back and there's judgment, there's separation, there's uh, final uh, resolution to all these tensions going on. And so what do you see in this phrase day of visitation? How does it help the Christian continue to persevere in times like these where it might be difficult to balance those tensions? It might be really difficult to um, have that submission posture or um, be a servant of all people when you're being denigrated as an evildoer. Yeah, Peter talks about this in chapter one when he tells us to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Right? Mm. There's a power in setting our eyes not on this world, but on the world that is to come. And so I think part of when he says, talks about the day of visitation, he kind of recalibrates us as believers to say, hey, even if you're in a hard marriage or a hard workplace or a hard society or you have a hard government or whatever it is, this is not your home. There will be a day when the kingdom comes and the king returns for his people, keep your eyes set on that. But at the same time, it's this reminder of kind of that idea when Jesus says, right, when I return, will you be ready, right? And will all these people be ready? And so it's a, a missional focus too, to say, as you live your life in this place, remember, we have a short amount of time. The king will return like a thief in the night, Jesus says. At any moment, the king can come back and visit us. And what are we doing in this moment to prepare the people around us to be ready for the visitation of Jesus, even if they don't claim to be Christians? Because really, we know we cannot control the outcome of our reverence in our lives. We're, if we're living in uh, a marriage to an unbelieving spouse, you know, like I think it's Peter who says, who knows, wives, if you're going to save your husband, right? You don't know if that's if it's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. But what you want to be able to do at the very least is when Christ comes back to say, you know what, I did everything that I could mm. to live my life as you prescribed in such a way that my prayer and my actions aligned towards my husband coming to faith in Jesus or my wife coming to faith in Jesus. And so I really think this idea of the visitation of God reminds us that Jesus is coming back, that mm -hmm. this is not our home, that he can come back at any moment, and that while we're living here, it is not merely temporary, but is also our mission field, that honorable living actually is a huge evangelistic tool that God has given us towards the salvation of folks that he's put in our spheres. I love ending these episodes with a quote that we pulled from the commentary, and I pulled another one talking about this future visitation. It says, the future visitation of God in Christ will be a day of blessing for God's holy nation, but a day of judgment and condemnation for the nations who are not God's people. The witness of a sustained good lifestyle by Christians who are being maligned by their society will be a testimony on the final day of judgment, which will vindicate the Christian's faith. Those who reject the gospel will be condemned by their own harsh judgment of Christians who refused to indulge in the values and practices of an ungodly society. And so, Pastor Danny, I'm super excited to dive into more of the specifics of what it looks like to live in a life um, where the culture is kind of going against you and trying to stomp you out as a Christian, uh, claiming you're an evildoer and all these practical tools that Peter has for us. So, Pastor Danny, thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, keeping the conversation going. And honestly, like we've been saying these last few weeks, this is such a big topic. This is why we've devoted these three weeks in a row to really talk about the spiritual warfare, what do-gooding looks like, and even next week as we uh, talk with Pastor Ray about what it means to 
take our faith away from our, just our family's faith and even just a Sunday faith and bring it out into the world. This, this idea of doing good in the real world as real Christians is so powerful. We're taking three weeks to hit it before we dive into the context that Peter places us in. So I'm looking forward to spend one more week talking about this, and then we're going to bring this thing into the home and into the workplace and all over the world. 